Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes in Hell. It's a 15-minute podcast. I'm Edward Zitron. Joining me today is Carrie Byron, former Mythbuster and the director of the National STEM Challenge. Carrie, thank you for joining me. I'm glad to be here. All right. So, may as well ask, what is the National STEM Challenge then? <laughs> Um, well, I've been a part of a lot of uh, science fairs since Mythbusters ended because uh, I've become a STEM advocate, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. And I wanted to take this to the supersized level. So if you remember the National Science Fair back during, God, it must have been a decade and a half ago, I wanted to bring it back bigger now that we have much more internet reach, make it more accessible and wide reaching. So I am directing the National STEM Festival, which is a nationwide challenge for kids 6th through 12th grade right. to come up with a solution that uh, tackles a real-world challenge um, like environmental stewardship, future fu- foods, powering the planet, space innovation, tech for good, health and medicine, you know, the small things that the world has to deal with. Yeah, nothing big. Nothing. Kids have creativity that adults don't because they have no boundaries and they come up right. with solutions that blow my mind. So kids enter the challenge and then we pick four kids from every state and territory. We fly them to Washington, D.C. for a festival presented by us and the Department of Education. They're going to have a whole weekend of fancy festivities and expo gala. The whole whole of D.C. is putting on some sort of event for all of these kids who are going to be, well, the kids that are solving the problems that we've created. Do you think America has a problem getting kids into STEM? Do you think it's got better or worse? Because I feel like when I was going up to 37, um, last few decades, you've seen more publicity around it, but do you think it's got better, worse? What do you think? You know, I think it's just different. I, I, I think that kids get lost sometimes um, in certain areas. Like we, we, we have a real hard time reaching rural or um inner city or, you know, there's a lot of places where I just think that people aren't looking for genius and genius doesn't have borders. And, you you know, you really kind of have to reach out to the teachers because they know the kid that isn't raising their hand, but is the one, you know, they're the one that actually comes up with the really interesting conversations. So um, I, as a kid, took that test, you know, where they're like, are you gifted? Will you be in the smart kids class? I failed. Right, right. And from then on, I really considered myself one of the dumb kids, one of the average kids. And I didn't really try that hard. I didn't raise my hand in science class because I didn't think that I could. I I didn't think I'd have the right answer. And I really just took that one small moment and classified myself. So it's kind of why I do what I do now is because I've seen that catalyst moment with kids where all of a sudden they've got a positive reinforcement that makes them go, oh, Maybe I am the smart kid. Maybe maybe I maybe I can do this. Maybe my ideas are are good. And I'm I'm hoping to reach as many kids as possible to give them that positive moment. Well, that's the thing. I I it's funny. Your whole story is really interesting to me because you didn't have a science background. I myself failed most languages, all of the sciences pretty much because I was told I was not good at this and I chose to believe them. Was in a private school, didn't do didn't do a good job on that one. But it was also a lot of science feels like it's taught in this very arcane way, in this very kind of numerical, heavy-handed. You must know that, which I guess in like there are certain cases where that's necessary. But it doesn't feel like a lot of science education tries to tell you why you're learning it. They just tell you you have to. 
Yeah, I think it's hard sometimes to make that connection of why it's real world irrelevant. Like, you know, I talked to my kid and she's like, why do I need to know this date? What is it about this date on this test that's going to help me as an adult? Am I going to be your age and start thinking, oh, when was this date important? I'm like, here's the thing is is I, we don't understand this till we're older. It's why we do crosswords and Sudoku puzzles when we're in our right. 50s and 60s. It's not about remembering the date. It's about training the brain like a muscle. It's about, you know, we're lifting weights to get a big muscle. You're lifting these weights to make your brain think in these ways. It's why people who play the guitar are generally better at math because it's the same part of the brain that does that processing. So to make it real world and relevant, people like you and me we are storytellers. This is what a lot right. of kids don't understand is what is a STEM job? STEM jobs aren't necessarily, you know, you're working in Livermore, uh, Livermore Lawrence Labs, you know. My mate, my mate worked there for many years, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's, 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 for us, it's storytelling. It's telling those stories. So maybe I talked to an engineer at Lawrence Livermore Labs and I have a STEM job because I'm helping with that communication tunnel. It's, it's that, if I approach science like art and I get my hands dirty, I tell the stories, I can be a part of that awe moment, that's why I'm a STEM advocate. That's that's what I think it's hard to tell kids is like, why does it matter to you? Why is it relevant? It's really just, are you curious? Kids are curious. Science is curiosity. Yeah, I have a, I have a five-year-old. And I've been showing him like the vinegar the, the, with the food coloring and the, I forget what the other, uh, the baking soda and such. And that has naturally got him suddenly like interest in science because it does things. It's not just little equations, but it's kind of, kind of early for the equations part. But on a slightly different tact, are you concerned about how everyone saw this a lot during the pandemic? A lot of people think they know science while skipping a few steps. That's been my real concern. If you mean misinformation, yes, I think. Yes, I very much do. I think the misinformation is, it is concerning, which is why I honestly think that there are three things that are really, really important to teach your kids. Um, the most important things. One, critical thinking. We really need critical thinking so that they can move through all of the nonsense and figure out for themselves what's real. Second is empathy. I I always said, I've learned this from a mentor that, you know, it's, it's really hard for a kid to understand the refugee crisis. But if you tell the story of one refugee, they can humanize it and bring it to themselves. So critical thinking- right and empathy. And the third thing that's the most important, which is so important, especially for middle and high school kids, is confidence. It's a really, really, it's okay. hard being young. You've got pressures from everywhere and everybody's telling you, you need to look like this, be like this, think like this. And to find confidence in yourself, to raise your hand, to say the right answer, to find yourself, to be yourself, even when everybody's telling you you have to wear, you know, the same pajama pants and tiny little top that every girl on TikTok's wearing is tough. So if we can start instilling that as young as possible, empathy, critical thinking, and confidence. That's that's everything. And I feel the the growth of misinformation, disinformation, and conspiracy theories, rotten myths, if you will 
kind of came from that lack of confidence that I feel a lot of young men have, especially these days. The growth of people like Andrew Tate and the like seem to have grown through taking advantage of that lack of confidence and that confusion and that overwhelming amount of information for young people. Well, I mean, all of the triggers in your brain for fear and anger, and they all come from the same place as the rewards that you get from doing something good. But it's easier. It's easier to prey on people who want a good takedown, who who are going to make themselves feel better by making other people feel bad. It's it's yeah. just it's really easy, and it's it's sad because I I honestly feel bad for the people that are doing this. I think that I think that a lot of people come from fear and trauma. And they right. don't know how to get past that. They, they, I, I honestly, when I have somebody who has a differing opinion from me, I rarely go at them swinging fists. I, I kind of go at them with trying to find some sort of common ground that's going to be yeah. the gateway to, because honestly, travel all around this country. I talk to a little, like actually all around the world. I talk to people who are so different than me all the time. Right. We all have so much more alike than different. I mean, we all want our families to be safe. We want to know where our next meal is coming from. And we want to know that we have a place, a roof over our head when we go to bed that night. Anything other than that is just noise. So, slightly happier topic. Is your, is your daughter into STEM? Has she been... Uh, I have a 14-year-old that I am constantly trying to inspire, but she's also 14. So... I can see the messages getting to her, but she also has to fight very hard to rebel against me and question me constantly. What she doesn't understand is that questioning. Yeah, that's still STEM. (laughs) Yes. She's still engaging the scientific method with her mother. But what is she in? So what has she gravitated towards? Is she she into science or is she into other things? Because I've heard numerous friends who are like quite scientific, their kids just drama or literature or something yeah um well she is like me in that she's super into film she loves her film classes she's into psychology and she really really likes doing service projects i know she signed up to do like a beach cleanup you know that kind of stuff she feels really good when somebody tells her she's doing good so um, she's, she is not somebody who's jumped into science head first, but she is a storyteller like her mama. That's great though. So, and, and on that note, a friend of mine were talking about this interview as well. And it's, how did you actually get to the performative aspect? Because your path was non-traditional, I think is a, as a euphemistic, euphemistic way of putting it. You were like, yeah, I'm a sculptor. And I love doing creepy little sculptures. That's like, that's what I did last night when I had extra time. I sat down and started watching a horror movie and made a creepy little sculpture. That's, I wanted to make monsters in the movies. Like that is where I wanted to go. I'd been doing that since I was a little kid, just with, you know, I tore apart a Cheerios box and turned it into a skull when I was in grade school. Like that's just me. But I wanted to be, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't figure out how to be an artist and I tried the fine arts way and I was showing in galleries, but I also wasn't, nobody buys my creepy little sculptures back then. So I, I needed to find a real job. And so I became an intern 
you know, because not getting paid is the best way to start your career. I exactly. interned at Jamie Heineman's shop M5, which is a special effects shop. And he was known for giving everybody kind of their first break and down and dirty special effects props, like for movies from everything from like Nightmare on uh, night, night. Sorry, uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. He had those little heads in his shop and mugwumps from the Naked right. Lunch movie. Very, very obscure. Uh, but really, really cool model making and special effects. And the first day I started working as an intern is the first day MythBusters started filming out of the shop with him and Adam Savage. And reality back then was actually real. You know, they had one camera. No makeup. Nothing's lit. Practical effects. Yeah. It, like with real conversations, the, the editors must have had a nightmare of cutting room floor boring conversations to go through. So I was in the background and I was cleaning up the messes and I was sharpening the bent screws and straightening them because, you know, we were cheap um, and <laughs> didn't have a budget. Like that was my job. And then sooner or later, they're like, hey, put her on camera. They couldn't make shows fast enough and they needed more content. So they started making me talk. It was horrifying and awful and a trial by fire. So you didn't do any like improv or anything. You just went straight into it. I was so shy growing up, like so shy, like wait by the window for the other kids to pass on the way to school so that I could run outside, walk on the other side of the street and wait for them to invite me to walk with them and then not talk with them the whole way unless they ask me a question. Like shy. I I broke out of it more as a teenager, but that's always in me. Like that sort of, I am not an extrovert. Um, (laughs) I know it's, it's hard to believe now because that's become my career is to be on show, but I am not a live audience person. I'm more of a, if I talk to the camera, it's like talking to one person. But how did you break it? Just sheer force of will? Um, still, before I go on stage for a talk, I feel sweat in my my feet and my hands. I, I right. have a shallow breath. Like I, I remember the first time I walked out on the Letterman show, that was my first interview live interview that was outside of Mythbusters and I remember having this moment where I just pretended like I was breathing in stars tried to defocus the rest of the world took a big deep breath out and tried to spray the stars out of me and then walked on stage to those bright lights and I was so nervous like I could I can hear my voice shaking in that old clip but then I had like Letterman look me in the eyes and bring my eyes from down on the floor where I was looking up to him and have this interview. And then it was just sort of this moment like, oh, okay, people are going to help me through this. This is this, I, this is not me alone. Like I can do this. And then when I watched the interview later, I'm like, okay, yes, I can do this. And I think it was a moment for me. It was a, I mean, it was a big on television with somebody who I had watched growing up and was bananas, but it was, it was a moment. Carrie, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure having you. Well, I wish I had more than 15 minutes with you. You're lovely. Well, that's the, that's the crux of the show, sadly. Live, live by the 15 minutes, die by the 15 minutes. You've been listening to 15 minutes in hell. My name's Ed Zitron. You can find us at wheresyoured.at slash podcast and find us on chat.wheresyoured.at on the Where's Your Ed at Discord. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>